Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And a very good afternoon to you. Five minutes past 12 o'clock. Nikki Seberini here, 101.9 Chai FM. This is, of course, the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. And uh, wow, you know, for the last past four years, we've had the three C's dinner, and it's every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's a, a, a celebration. Um, it's a, we remember, we share stories, and I'm talking talking about cancer, comedy, career. Nick Rabinovitz, of course, was the MC. Um, I remember going three years ago when it was at the Capri and it, they were bursting at the seams. And then last year it was at um, Summer Place and also it was very full. And then last night at the Barnyard Theatre in Ravonia. And may I say, I mean, first of all, sponsored by Liberty, um, Reva did the catering. It was delicious. The decor, also the, the uh, uh, decor um specialist who Liberty uses regularly um, did the decor for the event last night, which was just quite spectacular. Um, Nick just on on top form as always. And having Cancer Warriors stand up and share their stories. Musa, um, this young man who was on the show a few months ago, a story about him developing cancer, having to have his leg amputated. He wanted to be a soccer player. He had to recalibrate his life and he's, he's become a, a dancer and we were so um, privileged last night to watch him dance and how he has honed his art and how beautiful it was. Of course the words of Michelle Goodman the the words of everyone really sharing their stories and talking about the DL link. So it is such a privilege for me um, to be able to be the voice once a week um, between 12 and 1 on the DL link show because we get to bring you the extraordinary stories and the extraordinary stories will continue today. Um, I don't know if you remember going back to 2015 um, there was a, an incredible campaign um, going on and um, it was the get me to 21 it was a hashtag get me to 21 and the hashtag was driven by Jenna Lowe, who was this 20-year-old young girl who really was fighting for her life, but more importantly, bringing awareness to um, organ donation and to the fact that she was looking for um, lungs. Um, she, in fact, was Lead SA's Youth Hero of the Year in 2015. She had the transplant, and unfortunately, she never made it. Um, and really, South Africa mourned because... They were on the journey with her. So what a thing that um, Jenna's mother, Gabby Lowe, has written the most extraordinary memoir, and it's uh, titled Get Me to 21. It is a big memoir. It's 438 pages long, filled with beautiful stories, poignant moments, uh, such revelations, such insights. Um, it'll break your heart. It'll fill you with joy. Um, and certainly you will learn a tremendous, tremendous amount. So I really am delighted after the break to introduce uh, Gabby Lowe onto the show. She's going to be sharing um, her story, how she was fighting for uh, her daughter Jenna Lowe's life. And I'm sure as I'm saying that right now, you can feel that twinge in your heart. What a brave woman she is. Gabby with us um, just after the break. So don't you go anywhere. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. 
Welcome back, the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. Just before the break, I told you about a book we're going to be talking about, Get Me to 21, written by Gabby Lowe, about her daughter, Jenna Lowe's story. Um, and as I said, in 2015, the, remember the, the Get Me to 21, the hashtag, and I remember um, seeing Jenna's beautiful face, and she said, you're invited to my 21st birthday party. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, you're invited, and it was really about bringing awareness um, to organ donation because that's what she needed. She was looking um, for two healthy lungs. Um, so I have Gabby Lowe on the show today. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. It, it really is wonderful to have you on the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks. So, Gabby, let's talk about um, 2015, your life you know, turning upside down. It's now four years and you have written this extraordinary memoir. And having read it um, and read, you know, I mean, we all knew that that Jenna was an extraordinary person, but having really read it, you really got to see everything, all the details of the story. So I can understand that you would want to get, um, wow, just the insights of your daughter out into the public but how was that process for you, Gabby? Was this a cathartic process, the digging deep? Was it a very painful experience? Share, share that with us and why it is that you, you've done this. It was a very painful experience writing, writing it, but also cathartic. So it took me nine months. I started, um, I started in July last year. So that was three years after her death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really wanted to do it for many reasons. Um, one, to honor Jen and her legacy and what she did. But secondly, because now that you've read it, Nikki, um, you can see that there was so much to the story that no one really knew. They thought they knew, but, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, for myself, for my own healing, and because I think that the story has so much value in terms of so many lessons that we learned through that journey, that can be shared with people. And I have had the most incredible responses. Um, so it feels wonderful to, to know that it is having that sort of impact. The actual journey of writing was excruciating, having to go back in there, relive all those memories, find them, put them down, um, re-experience them in a way. But I think in doing so, I was able to put something down. You know, because it's now in writing, and so in some ways I can let it go because it's there forever. Mm-hmm. I hear that absolutely. And what an what a special child Jenna was, Gabby. I mean, just when she was eight years old, she 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 wrote a book herself when she was eight she years did. old. I mean, <laughs> she was such a beautiful writer, and she wanted to write a book when she came out um, of having her transplant. So. Um, she was going to tell this story. And when I first sat down, I thought I was telling her story. But in actual fact, you know, mm. I, you can't tell someone else's story. I ended up telling our story, mm. um, obviously, with, with her, her our lens, but her life. Mm. Mm. Um, yes, she was a beautiful writer. She wrote a, a little fairy tale children's book at the age of eight that was published. And weirdly enough, it's the story of a little girl who steps on a thorn and becomes ill and has to find a cure. Yeah. So that was quite 
strange. Yeah, absolutely. Eight years later, she became ill. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, some people would use the term an old soul. Uh, such such wisdom at such a young age. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that I've written down, well, I've just put a little marker in, in the book where she wrote something called My Life is a Braid. Um, and that was all the way back in 2007. And she says, my life is a braid, some parts tightly woven, some parts weakened in a way. The future lies before me. The threads are not yet sewn. They are lying in a pattern, one that I can't understand, lying so uncertain like a wave upon the sand. My destiny is a blank page. The pen is writing as I speak. At some times I'll be strong and calm, at others scared and weak. All I know for sure is that nothing's yet complete. The world will carry on without me, nonetheless less sweet. I can make a difference, and a difference can make me. I'm like a tiny seedling growing slowly to a tree. The future is still coming, like a wild and restless sea. It's uncontained. I've tried in vain, but through me it will seep. I am shielded as I can be. As I stand, I am prepared. I must admit, though, just to you, that sometimes I am scared. The future is still coming, surely that you see. My time has come. My will be done. Stand back, world. It's me. How old was she when she wrote this? Thirteen. Oh. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Just amazing. That was her mind. Huh? Mm. She just was born with this very beautiful, very bright, very open mind. Um, and that was an extraordinary gift to us to live mm. with that mm. um, for 20 years. It yeah. was a gift to have access to that, to enjoy that, to learn from that. Absolutely, Gabby. For such a short period, but she shone so bright because she just, she, you know, it wasn't just about making contact with you and your husband and her sister and the cousins and the friends and everyone she touched, but South Africa at large, you know, at that age to look into a camera and to say, this is this hashtag, get me to 21 and let's bring awareness to um, organ donors Donation. She just really was something very, very special. So I love that you've honored her memory in this book. This show, Gabby, is, um, you know, it's the Dear Link show, and we talk a lot about cancer. We talk a lot about struggle. We talk about working through particular journeys. Um, and we, we often focus on early detection and the importance of early detection. Let's talk about Jenna's um, very rare condition that she had um, and, and how a big part of your campaign and, and, and also this book is to the awareness of early detection, dete detection when it comes to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, this disease that yeah. she had? Absolutely, and the early detection is just vital, as you know, with cancers, but also with what Jen had, which was called pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's a degenerative lung condition for which there is currently no cure, mm -hmm. um, but there is treatment, and if you get treatment early enough, you can extend your longevity and in improve your quality of life. But Jen, it took 18 months for her to be diagnosed. It took a very long time to find a proper diagnosis. 
And um, part of why we were campaigning so passionately to raise awareness for primary hypertension was exactly that, that both Jane and us, we realized that in South Africa, so little is known about the condition. As it turns out, there are actually many pH patients in South Africa, and many were going undiagnosed and just dying without treatment. And now, since Jenna's death, we have started a a pH clinic at Gordeskir, and we have about 120 state patients at that clinic, but I know there are thousands of others. So I'm still passionate about raising awareness for the disease, and the main sort of message at the moment is, if you are breathless, you need to be taking breathlessness seriously. Mm. And I don't think that doctors do take it seriously enough. You know, we assume that it's because we're overweight or unfit or some other reason. If you are breathless, you need to find out what the underlying cause is. Mm. And so one of the things we're doing is next year we have a an international primary hypertension meeting in South Africa because um, after Jane passed away, I was invited to the World PH Summit last year in February, which was amazing. And the entire family was flown over. Christy sang the song that her and Jenna wrote called I Need More Time. It was the theme song for the Congress. And I was a keynote speaker. But one of the things was that we realized that there are these amazing centers of excellence all over the world. And yet none of that is available here for South Africans. Mm. So we are really campaigning to continue to raise awareness for primary hypertension, to open the clinics, to put pressure on um, Big Pharma to actually register the drugs here and on health insurances to recognize the illness. It's incredible that you're bringing so much of that to South Africa, Gabby. Really amazing. We're going to take a break. We'll continue um, afterwards. Please um, stay with us. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I'm talking about a book that actually has just hit the shelves uh, this uh, August called Get Me to 21, written by Gabby Lowe, um, a beautiful memoir. It is uh, at times difficult to read. At times it is just so illuminating and inspiring. At times it's just humorous. It's about life. It's about strength. And really it's making contact with a, a, a young girl who was um, in this world for such a short period of time but made such a huge mark, and her mom, Gabby, is continuing continuing to make changes, certainly here in South Africa um, with regards to this rare disease, um, um, pulmonary hypertension. So we're talking about the book, um, Get Me to 21. Gabby is on the line. Um, Gabby, just before the break, you were talking about bringing awareness to it, which is incredible. It's just incredible that that's what you're highlighting and that's what you're spending so much of your time doing as well as coaching and helping people because I know this, you know, you've become a coach. But what I, what I want to um, now talk about is... The action, the actual organ donation, the, the realization that Jenna needed two healthy lungs. Um, and of course the stark realization that in South Africa, it's very, very difficult, um, in terms of, uh, getting organs. Yeah. So that came as a huge shock to me. I must be honest. Mm-hmm. I took it for granted that if we got to that stage of really needing to get our heads around her having a transplant, which we knew would be incredibly difficult and quite a brutal thought, actually. I mean, a double lung transplant, it's just a brutal thought. Yeah. But I assumed that if and when we got to that stage that the organs wouldn't be an issue, but um, only to discover that that's not the case at all. I mean, we have one of the lowest organ donation rates in the world in South Africa. Shocking. Which absolutely seems shocking. shocking. Mm. Absolutely shocking. And if you consider that we're a country with so much crime and violence and so many road accidents, 
can you imagine all those young healthy bodies that those are organs that some sense could be made of those mm, deaths mm. because they could be saving the lives of other people. Mm, I agree. Um, so, yeah, it's just crazy. I, I don't understand it at all. Um, so Jen got emergency listed for transplant in May of 2014. And by then she was really, really ill and could no longer um, leave the house. She was on oxygen. She was on a mobility scooter. She was on Flowland, an IV epicrostinal into her right heart chamber, which I mixed every day. She was on a lot of medications, and she was very, very, very breathless. I'm sorry, that's Stu coughing in the background. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, so we realized that the chances of her getting her lungs were very, very slim. And um, that was when she came up with this idea. But she, to be honest, I don't think she thought – well, I know she didn't because she told um, Kirk Gaines from, from the agency – she didn't think that the that the campaign would do anything for her. She didn't think she would get her lungs. But she did think that she would be able to make some impact in terms of changing the consciousness of South Africans. And that was the idea. That's why she did that video from her bed and invited the entire nation to her 21st birthday. She was 20 at the time, and she knew she wouldn't get to her 21st without lungs. And it was it was done with so just grace and humility, and absolutely she was never a victim. And... It was extraordinary that that 40-second video went viral overnight, and she single-handedly changed the organ donation rate by 287%. Wow. In three three months. Mm. And so, I mean, the lesson there is multifold. Number one, that you can, as an individual, have an impact. doesn't matter what you're dealing with. You can have an impact. But the other lesson is that I just think there's just not enough awareness in South Africa about organ donation. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about organ donation. I also think that it's weird that the government doesn't get behind it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really should be considering an opt-out system Mm -hmm. rather than an opt-in system. Mm -hmm. In in other countries of the world where they have fantastic organ donation rates, there's an opt-out system. So you are born legally an organ donor. If you want to opt out when you're 18, you can do so. And that's really what we should be pursuing, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a, it's a ch- change, I suppose, or in, in not changing a law, introducing a new law. I agree with you. I'm very passionate about it, and I actually try and talk about it as much as possible um, on the show. And I know that in terms of religion, you know, the the we can talk about things, but I I think it's something that we need to think about. And if we could save a life, if we could save a number of lives. Um, it's a conversation we have to have, as uncomfortable as it is. We just got to talk about it. It's a conversation we have to have. Mm. And I suppose maybe, um, having been through so much, um, I'm more acclimatized to the conversation. Yeah. But I don't understand why it's such a difficult conversation. Because the one thing we know for sure is that we're going to die mm. at some point. Mm. It's the only thing we know for sure. Yeah. Nothing else can we be certain of. Yeah. And so, in actual fact, you know, why is that a difficult topic? Mm. It's it's something that is definitely going to happen. And we're not actually talking about death when we talk about organ donation. We're talking about life. Mm. We're talking about giving life. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, so with you, Gabby. I think it's just a shift. Yeah, mm. it's just a shift in thinking. 
So the book opens, it starts with obviously you've been waiting and waiting and then the healthy lungs arrive. And so that's how the book starts. Um, Jenna, who's in Cape Town, you're in Plitt. I mean, you know, you, you happen to be there. Um, you never left uh, Jenna's side, but Christy wanted to go. It was the end of matric. And so it was the whole plan of how you would get to Joburg in time. Stuart, um, with, with Jenna and you flying over. And it's so, be- the, the whole book is so beautifully written, but you say just before oh, she goes in you. and that really really is and she says just as Jenna's about to go in and she says we kiss you say we kiss and hug one last time Jenna is looking straight up at me smiling a smile full of courage and hope I stroke her soft velvet cheek and kiss it one last time before the nurse pulls her bed away from me towards the double doors that read theater the bed bumps the doors the doors open I call out see you on the other side my love Jenna calls back over her shoulder. I'm not going to the other side, Mom. She is smiling encouragingly as the doors close behind her. She never left the hospital, did she, Gabby? No. No, she didn't. Um, It was an eight-hour very long surgery, and um, she never left the hospital. Mm. She never left the hospital. She was in ICU or isolation. For 187 incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, there were so many other challenges happening um, with the family at the same time. And I know we're going to be talking to Stuart in the in a moment. And you have become a life coach, and you're helping many people. But so many people listening to the show today are facing these kind of challenges, have lost loved ones, are in the process of losing loved ones. And I'm sure they have so many questions for you, Gabby, and I'm going to ask a number of questions, and one of them being, how have you coped? So, I mean, there are, it's a very long answer, but I think that the most important part of that, how have I coped, is about being incredibly conscious of trying to heal, mm-hmm. of trying to integrate the loss, of facing the trauma, staring it down, of really sitting in my grief, not trying to deny it or run from it or hide from it. And as Jen did right until the very last day, through heinous suffering, trying to be present to life, to the fact that We all suffer. Suffering is part of life, and we can still find joy. We can still find joy in our relationships, in being present, into the small things, in caring, and in living, even in pain, with an open heart, Hmm. actually. Hmm. I want to focus on that, Gabby. I've heard you say you feel the grief every minute of every day, and yet you still feel joy. I do. I do. And I think that the two are inextricably linked. I think that I, I absolutely firm believer that if you shut down the pain mm-hmm. because you can't cope, look, obviously, immediately after losing someone, I'm not talking about that. That, in, that, that grief that's in, and the post-traumatic stress, you know, that is hectic. You cannot sit in that kind of level of pain all of the time, and our psyches will take us in and out of it, in and out of it, in and out of it as we can cope, and that's appropriate. But later down the line of grief, to 
actually open your heart to the feeling. You know, we, we tend to run away from it because mm. we are scared of feeling it. Yeah. But if you don't allow yourself to feel and you shut down, unfortunately, you don't just shut down the bad. You shut down the good as well. You don't get to selectively numb emotions. Right. You don't get to say, okay, well, I don't want to feel this, but I'm happy to feel that. If you shut down, you shut down. You disconnect. Right. That's what happens. So to stay with it allows you to find moments of joy. I mean, we all know, if you think of every family that's listening, if you're going through travesty and loss and adversity, black humor, I mean, it's one of the things that helps us to, to cope. Mm. We find ridiculous things to, to laugh at. And how fast can those tears of laughter become tears of pain? Yeah. You know, yeah. the two are linked. They are linked. Yeah. Um, and I will find joy in the smallest of things, which I do think that years ago I didn't even notice. Now I do. Those mm. are the things that give me joy. Mm. So, you, so time, also time, very important. So, sure, Gabby. And, um, you know, there's Christy. And Christy is Jenna's sister, and they were so incredibly close. And I can just imagine with that time um, spent at the hospital, the build-up, all of those things that it must have been very, very hard for Christy, then the loss, then her being left alone, and the guilt, and all of that. And, of course, Stuart, who we'll be talking to, because there were more challenges there. How important was it, and how were you able to just keep this family unit, or was it because you had the strong foundation before that you were able to stay connected and, and, and knitted together? I think it's both. I think we had an incredibly strong foundation before, but I know many families, <clears throat> excuse me, who have a strong foundation, and trauma can pull them apart, yeah. you know. Mm. It really can. But we worked very hard and very consciously as a family, Stuart, Christy, myself, and Jen, to constantly talk about what was going on. But we did it in a facilitated way. So we had an amazing woman called Sue Cooper, who's a clinical psychologist, but she's also an absolute guru on meditation. And she would come to our house every second Thursday evening. We would meditate together, and then we would do what we called a listening meditation. And really all that was, was each person got to speak about what had come up to them, what they're dealing with, what they're really facing. And I can promise you that every single time it was different. Wow. We were all on a different page because everybody's experience of Jane's illness was different. Sure. What Christy was experiencing was completely different to what I was experiencing, what Stuart was experiencing, and what Jenna was experiencing on any given day. And so I think that part of, of, of our disappointment with people around us can sometimes be that we expect them to grieve the way we're grieving. Mm. Or we expect them to respond to a situation the way we're responding. Or we expect them to feel the way we feel. And one of the things that we developed as a family was the the emotional maturity to hold that for each other, to allow each other to feel differently at different times. And I think that's really, really crucial. I think it's really crucial yeah. to to... And communicating about it all the time, Mm -hmm. being open Mm -hmm. to the hard stuff and and the good stuff. Mm. Gabby, thank you. Oh, thank you, Gabby, really, for writing the book, for um, giving hope to a lot of people in the words, the the beautiful stories, the insights, um, and thank you for your time today. Um, we really, really appreciate it, and I know that, that your hubby is standing. Is he standing next to you? 
Yes, he's just come into the room. He's not feeling great today, but he's here. Hello, hello, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you hear us? Me. I'm going to give him my seat. Here we go. Gabby, you're amazing. Thank you so much. You are just incredible. The bravery. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Gabby. Gabby Lowe, and just get your hands on this book. You're listening to the show. You're going through. You don't have to be going through any kind of trauma. You don't have to be facing an illness to read this book and extract the most exquisite gems from it. Get me to 21, Gabby Lowe, a mother's epic battle to save her daughter's life. And now here is the husband, the father, Stuart. Stuart, welcome. Wonderful, wonderful to have you on the show as well. Good to be on the show. Thank you. Wow, Stuart. You know, reading the book, I never knew what your story was. And it's all just come to me, obviously, before the show, um, doing research and finding out about your story. Because while Jenna was ill, you had been diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, so um, I was actually just counting the years now. It's actually... It's actually six and a half years since I was diagnosed. So that predates, in fact, the same window of time when we were starting to get close to a diagnosis for Jen. Um, So April 2013, uh, I went water skiing. I broke a rib. Two weeks later, I tripped and uh, broke a bone in my hand. And I've never broken a bone before. And my doctor said, that's very strange. Um, let's take some bloods and just see what's going on. My protein levels were elevated, and two weeks later I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Hmm. Um, but at the time it was smoldering, so my levels of myeloma, which is a blood uh, bone marrow cancer, um, were elevated, but not to the point that I needed treatment. So, um, And there was obviously so much going on with Jen at the time, and that got escalated over the next years. So I decided for myself and my own sanity and for the rest of the family that it would be best if um, I just kept that to myself um, until I needed treatment. And as it transpired, I actually didn't land up um, breaking out of my my myeloma levels until um, Jen died. So I stayed pretty stable. I had um, blood tests every three months and a bone density infusion every three months, um, but didn't tell anybody. And then um, when Jen died halfway through 2015, my levels and, uh, you know, everything, you know, the worst possible thing is obviously stress. Um, So the stress was a massive trigger, and then my levels went up, and um, I started treatment in early 2016. You know, I'm sure people listening, as as I am listening, it's, I, I just don't know how, how more cruel, and I don't know if cruel is the right word, but it's just how it feels when I listen to your story. And I know that your niece, um, also just before um, Jenna was diagnosed, that your niece had um, had been diagnosed with cancer. She had been overseas going for specific treatment. Stuart, how... Yeah. How did you contain that? How did you sit with this knowing that you had this cancer, that you didn't want to burden your family, that you wanted Jenna to go through um, the, the, the healing as much as she can or go through the, the treatment or whatever it was? How how did you contain it? Was the, with, with, Did anyone know? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, a, it was an intense period because there was, sure. you know, I think when, you, when you're dealing with adversity and there's one sort of dominant 
moment of adversity that you focus on, it's um, everything sort of centers around that. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you have two or three concurrent big things, it becomes um, quite complicated. And I think in a way it almost served me to put my cancer in a box um, because it, it, it was something that I couldn't necessarily deal with from a treatment perspective. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was nothing to be done other than just keep watching it. Right. Um, but um, obviously emotionally, that was a completely different story. We'd just come out of um, a very intense period of looking after my sister Shirley's um, challenges with her child, Natalie, uh, which involved two um, outlier experimental surgeries to her spine, to remove a, a spinal tumor um, in Boston, which required an enormous amount of money and holding of the family back here, which Gabby and I were very involved in. Um, but the family had no seen or recovered from that when Jenna was diagnosed, and as as I've just explained, it was the same time that I was diagnosed. Mm. So, um, and then at the same time, Gabby was unable to um, be away from Jenna because she needed um, lots of assistance with all of her oxygen, etc., and nursing. So Gabby closed down her marketing business, and I had been running a media business, um, a fair-sized media business here in Pinelands in Cape Town, and uh, I'd been there for 17 years, and I left at the end of 2012. So we had no income, no prospects, no um, potential income in our future, massive costs. I had cancer, my daughter had terminal disease, and I just lost my niece. <sighs> So, um, but, so my, my, you asked what I did do. What I did do is I had a very dear friend who, um, was just one of those gifted listeners and mentors. Um, and he, uh, we agreed to meet at 10 o'clock every Monday and we did that for a few years. And we literally, like, would start the meeting with, okay, how did we finish up the last cup of coffee we had? And, and by the time we finished, that cup of coffee would agree on the next steps in terms of what I needed to do to process where I was at to, um, A, sort out my business uh, possibilities. And I started a research business, which happily has been running very well ever since then. Um, but also to have the discussions about when to tell Gabby, if ever to tell Jenna, um, which I was pretty clear on that I never, I could never see other than if Jen came out of hospital happily after a lung transplant and and uh, lived for longer, then I would obviously have shared her, my diagnosis with her. But I couldn't see any point with a family under so much strain to tell them that I also had cancer. You know? mm. Oh, wow, Stuart. Wow, and to have a friend mm. like that who who would meet with you and who could be almost a vessel and you could just pour into this vessel and he could hold that. It it says so much. You know, we talk about having community, having support, having that. Wow. Stuart, we're going to take a quick break. Please stay with us. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life.
thank you so much for staying with us. This is the Deal Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. I'm Nikki Seberini, here for you on 101.9 High FM. I have Stuart Lowe on the line, um, Gabby's husband, um, Jenna's father, um, and sharing. He's a, a, a cancer warrior. Gee, an extraordinary story, Stuart. Um, and the moment when you told Gabby after Jenna had passed away, you waited six months. And now you were going to drop another bomb. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those first six months were were obviously brutal. And we were just limping to the first Christmas, the first end of year holiday, which we went up the coast. And I was very weird. I was um, I was on 10 or 12 tramacet a day. I had massive bone pain. I had... Um, I had abscesses all over my body because my white, my white bloods were, were really, really challenged. And my myeloma levels were completely off the chart, but I wanted to get to the end of that December because it was the first Christmas without Jen. Um, and anyway, I just about made it and I, and then told Gabby that I wanted to come home a few days earlier. And then she came home and we were going to start the year and I, Sat down in the bed one night and said, um, you know, this is all, there's another piece of news that unfortunately I'm going to have to share with you. And I started treatment literally two days later. Um, so I, I don't know whether that was the, whether that was foolish or wise, um, who will ever know. And, you know, obviously for Gabs and I, the foundation of our relationship is obviously trust and honesty. And, you know, we've been together for, 30 years, mm. um, and that's been, you know, the bedrock of our relationship. So, and here was this huge deceit of me not sharing my news for so long. But I do believe that it served me because um, I was able to do what I needed to do with Jenna mm. and the rest of my life. Absolutely. And the world wasn't uh, reflecting back my diagnosis to me every minute of the day, as mm. tends to happen once you come out as a cancer survivor. Um, And so, yeah, it suited me. There was just too much going on. And then when I needed to start treatment, obviously then the support was there for me. Hmm. Wow, Stuart, what what a thing. And and how are you doing? Um, Yeah, it's been interesting because I've had, um, just to, to go through quickly, 20 um, 16, I had a year of chemo. 2017, I had a bone marrow transplant and chemo. 2018, I had a subcutaneous uh, sort of high-intensity chemo called Valcade. I had four sessions of that. It then stopped working, and then I limped to the end of last year without treatment. My levels went right up, and then I discovered that, uh, like with Natalie, like with Jenna, um, I'd actually run out of drug alternatives. So, again, back to Medical Control Council. I negotiated a discount with a manufacturer in the U.S. I have a great big discount. Discovery helped me with um, this drug. There are only two of us in the country on it. And then um, I fly somebody to India to buy a generic of the second pathway drug. Um, and then the third is steroid. So I'm on a triple therapy at the moment. And I feel crap today, to be I'm honest. Sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. It's a I'm lot, it's loaded a with, um, with chemicals at the moment, so I'm not feeling – I have been feeling really good. So 
it's slightly depressing to feel crap at the moment. I'm sure. But you know, the fact that you've come onto the show and that you have shared your story so bravely, I, I just, I wish you knew, Stuart, how many people you are touching right now who are listening to the show who, who, who are on the journey, who are on a, such a similar journey. And of course, there's the story with Gabby and Jenna and uh, Christy. So just, I just want you to really feel our gratitude and that, uh, we really appreciate what you have shared with us and that we wish you, um, good health and vitality and God bless you and God bless your family. And thank you for, for thank spending you. time with us today. Thank you for letting us tell our stories. Mm, what a story. You've inspired many of us. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Good health. Good Ciao. health. Bye bye. Wow. Wow. What does one say? Not much except to introduce our next guest, uh, Rachel Carr. She's a sister at hospice. She is a DL Link angel. Um, she deals in palliative care um, when it comes to the DL Link. And she has so much experience and she's been listening to the story and nodding and shaking her head and, and kind of really connecting with what Stuart has been saying. Rachel, welcome. Lovely to have you again on the show. Thanks, Nikki. What a story. What what a story! I I know I'm not sure how much you you heard, but you came in when we were talking to Stuart, and as I mm. said, I not much to say. A family, it's kind of like trying to swim, and you get hit by a wave and another wave and another wave. And what a beautiful mm. connected family you are! You know, you work with hospice, you work with the DL Link, you see the importance of support. Mm. Um, he talks about that initial diagnosis, and he said before you come out. With your cancer diagnosis, and you talk about that, Rachel. Um, you 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 talk about when you're first diagnosed and and the shock of that diagnosis and how everyone responds. Yes, yes, I do. First of all, Stuart, you're an absolute inspiration, and yeah. I just wish you well. And sounds like you you going in that direction. Mm. Um, Nikki, yes, I'm a qualified palliative care sister. It, it is a specialist qualification. And we often say regarding the shock, it is really bad news. And it is such a shock. And before that one can even come to terms with that, they are busy with their treatment and investigations and running back and forth, that actually the shock is never dealt with. Mm. One often finds many years later when with bereavement that the family has not even processed the shock of the diagnosis. On so many levels, so many levels. Rachel, we're going to take a break. We'll continue in a moment. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. I have Rachel Carr. She is a sister. She um, deals with palliative care um, for the DL Link, works at hospice as well. Um, and she deals with support and the needs of um, people who are going through the, the cancer journey. Um, in terms of hospice, Rachel, um, we, we, we have people who come from hospice and we always say we really want you to be very aware that hospice is not about the end. It's about the journey. It's about helping with the treatment while the treatment's taking place. And I always want to emphasize that because people have the wrong idea. A hundred percent. And whenever I do meet a family and we call our patients families and as Nikki as you said and as Stuart said this is about the family and this is um, about support and 
And that is the hard part to work with. People often forget about the family. And the truth is that sometimes you realize the patient is the easy one to work with. Really? The family is in the background, quietly pretending not to be falling apart. But suffering. Suffering and struggling, all in secret, Mm. not wanting to show one another because in inverted commas, they have to be strong. Mm-hmm. And they've got to carry on with this, this life as usual, but with a huge, huge added part of it. And, um, talking about hospice is the first thing I do ask people because often you mention hospice and I'll be shown to the door. Uh, people will very quickly say, I don't, that, that's not about me. I don't need hospice. And I ask them, what do you think hospice is? And 100% the answer is, it's that dark, scary place where you go to, to die. die. Mm. If you go into hospice, you never come out. And unfortunately, hospice has that terrible, terrible stigma. The history of hospice is so interesting. goes back a thousand years, but uh, we haven't got time to go into that now. Hospice basically needs to be rebranded because it is not that dark, scary place that you go for the end. In actual fact, the last week when I was on night duty, there was very little to do because four out of the six patients were going home the next day. Mm-hmm. And I just had to say good night, have a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And that is an absolute shock to people. Yeah, they come so that they can be treated with something. The families have mm-hmm. a break. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, we're going to be talking about the unit, the, mm-hmm. the inpatient unit in a moment. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Beautiful. It's wonderful. And, and it's very important that people out there listening to the show realize that hospice is there for this journey. It's the support as well for the patient and for the family. And you work hand in hand with the Dear Link. With the Dear Link. This is my, you know, this is what I do for Dear Link. Just to go back to palliative care, which I will explain, but, um, the hospice is actually a palliative care. We don't like to say medical facility because it sounds so cold, but we deal, we're specialists in, in, med, in palliative care. Hospice, by the way, has just been absolutely redone, the hospice in Houghton, remodeled and given the most phenomenal facelift by a group of unbel- a team of unbelievable, magnificent, um, dedicated people. But I believe you'll hear about that. Hospice is um, palliative care. Can I explain, Nikki, what palliative care yes, is? Yes, yes. It, um, it is about the family. It is about the patient and his family. And what we look at is the care and the treatment all of the side effects and, and, and symptoms and experiences of a person and a family traveling through the cancer journey. Not only cancer, but other long-term illnesses such as renal failure and Alzheimer's even. And um, we travel along this journey and our aim is to increase the quality of life mm. by treating the pain, 
terrible symptoms of nausea, exhaustion, and just providing comfort. One very, very important point is that palliative care does not start when curative treatment, chemotherapy, radiation ends. Very important point. Very, very, very important. It happens before, as it's happening through the process of the treatment. Palliative care starts with the diagnosis of, 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 of a cancer or a life-threatening or life-limiting illness and it, um, and it carries on for many, many years mm. and long into bereavement. If Thank you for God that. forbid that should be the route one goes. Thank you for that, mm. Rachel. I think very important mm. for people to hear on the show. Mm. So you've just said there's been a whole revamping of the unit, and I've got mm. in the studio Farrell Burson. Hi, Farrell. Thank you for joining us. Uh, he's a registered financial advisor and life planner, mm. an executive elite financial planner. And you were approached, um, and you knew nothing about hospice, really. Um, tell us, tell us, we've got a few minutes left, unfortunately, but tell us a, a, a bit about how you connected with hospice and what you've been doing. Thanks, Nikki. I'm going to have to come back because this is an incredible story. <laughs> Good game, definitely. <laughs> and uh, I hope I can articulate in such a short space of time uh, the journey that we've actually gone through over the past 13 months. And, and literally, it actually started in terms of your question, had I exposure to hospice? I, I did. Uh, my father-in-law passed away. And the home care unit obviously assisted uh, him through the process, Sister Joanne, incredible uh, experience. And what happened 13 months ago, a friend of mine was sitting at the, at the, ta- at the dinner table, and I was telling her that I'm looking uh, to take on a charity project. And she said to me, well, why don't you come to hospice and uh, see what you can assist with. On the Monday, I went there, and I looked around, and the dream came true. The vision was clear for me. Oh. And I was actually quite horrified I was taken back in terms of what I saw right. because of the perception oh. of what I had in my mind of hospice. Right. The environment, the facility, it needed work. It was tired. Mm-hmm. And being the creative, innovative person that I am, I thought to myself, okay, I can do a bit of paint here. I know painter. I can maybe clean the carpets. I can maybe put a light or two in. And so I needed a team. So I approached my friend Saul Harbour, it was Friday night in Shabbos, and I said to him, I'm looking to do a project. He says, I'm in. I'm doing it. I said, you don't even know what it is. He says, I'm learning from the best. I'm doing it. (laughs) And then by divine intervention, Lynn Bloomberg came into our lives. Uh, She's uh, an interior designer. And uh, all this was put together by Hayley Elland, who lost her husband at hospice yes. and um, and who does volunteer work. And she's disqualified as a palliative care um, attendant now, which we're very proud of. And the four of us sat around a table and we said, OK, what are we going to do? Are we going to maybe just put our heads together, leverage off our network? Maybe we have to raise a bit of money. And we came up with a bit of a plan in terms of we needed a couple of hundred thousand rand. And we oh, were that's in, all. That's all. And we were sitting at Mug and Bean uh, in Nord, and uh, a guy comes up to the table and says, I heard what you were talking about, and I want to contribute towards this worthy cause. So I thought to myself, ah, oh, that's how we're going to raise the loudly. money. <laughs> that's how we're going to raise the money. And the bottom line is that we approached people who have an emotional connection to hospice, who have had some uh, in- interaction, some connection, and people that have contributed so generously because of that emotional connection, out of the goodness of their hearts. They've lost family there or they've been touched by hospice. I didn't go to conventional donors. We went to people, including ourselves, who contributed over 13 months 
And tonight we launched the official opening it's of tonight. hospice at correct at six okay. p.m. And we, I'm emulated. I feel proud uh, of the team, and I cannot believe what just came about from a little conversation into what we actually have today. And it's life changing for the Kola staff, kavot. and Kola it's life changing kavot. for the people. Oh, that, amazing, yeah. amazing! You're changing the face, you're changing the experiencing, you're changing everything. Farrell Burson, well done to you. Thanks, Nikki. And onwards, upwards with hospice. A thousand years it's been around. Isn't that amazing? So you've got to go to the Houghton after tonight. The launch is tonight. Correct. Go tomorrow and have a look at the brand new IPU, the inpatient unit. Thank you so much, Farrell, for coming onto the show. We need more time with you, and thank you, Rachel, more time with you as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sorry we're rushing. Until next week, from me, Nikki Seberini. Take care. Goodbye.